On today's episode, we have our very first listener birth story. We hope that you enjoy Ashley's vaginal twin birth. Please note, some listeners may find parts of her story triggering. We encourage you to listen with care. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Doula to Doula, conversations about pregnancy, birth, and the doula life. I'm your host, Exi Bueller, owner of Tranquil Touch Birth and Women's Wellness, providing nurturing care and support to women and families as a licensed massage therapist, certified birth doula and childbirth educator, and perinatal mental health coach. I hope that you find this show informative and entertaining, but please note that it is purely for education and entertainment purposes. At no time should anything said in this or any other episode be construed as medical advice or take the place of your medical providers. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Ashley. It's so nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you too, Exie. I'm glad that we could get this time to talk. You have an amazing birth story to share with our listeners today. Um, I'd like to welcome you to Doula to Doula and um, tell us a little bit about yourself because you you reached out to me as a listener first, which is amazing. And I'm just thrilled to like see someone who actually listens to the podcast. Yeah, um, I love listening to um, podcasts about birth. Um, and I was looking for podcasts about doulas because um, I just started, um, I did a workshop to um, do doula training through Dona. Um, and so I was interested in uh, learning more from other doulas. And this is one of the first podcasts that I found. Um, so it's been really great to listen to all of your episodes along the way. Well, thank you. Okay, Ashley. So tell me a little bit about you. Um, you're an aspiring doula was your subject line when you yes. first reached out <laughs> to email me. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, my day job. I'm a mechanical engineer by trade. I work for Ford remotely and I work on powertrain. So <laughs> nothing related to the doula world. <laughs> But when I was pregnant with my first son, he's three now, I was really interested in learning all about birth and pregnancy, and it was very foreign to me. Um, I didn't really have anyone close that had gone through it recently, <laughs> and so I was kind of, you know, doing my own research, listening to podcasts, and trying to figure out everything there is to know about it, because there's so much information. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then... I had my son, and then about a year later, we found out we were pregnant with the twins, which is the birth story we're going to talk about today, and that was during the height of the pandemic. So I, you know, I really wish that I had a doula with me at my births. Looking back, you know, it would have been really great to have that extra support, that advocate, someone to, like, slow down the moment and, you know, really talk through the decisions. So, you know, I, I want to be able to be that person for um, other people. Yeah. A lot of doulas are inspired by their own personal experiences. So you are definitely good in good company as far as that goes. So your first son, he's, he's three. How old are your twins? They're one and a half. So they're 20 months apart. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's dive right in. Just 
I know we're going to concentrate on the twins birth, which is really amazing because I don't think enough people are familiar with how having twins or multiples impacts the trajectory of your pregnancy journey. You had your son first, so you had a singleton pregnancy to kind of use as your baseline, I would imagine. Although being pregnant in the pandemic alone, singleton or more than one baby was a huge change of plans for many, many people. But give us just a brief overview really quick. Just hit maybe some highlights of your first birth experience with your son. Okay. So with my first son, I was 38 weeks along. I think it was like 38 and five. So I was pretty close to my expected due date. And I woke up the morning and just had some like wetness. I didn't know if it was my water leaking or if, you know, I just couldn't control my bladder at that point, like what was going on. Um. Yeah, that that actually happened to me as well. So for all of our (laughs) listeners out there, it's a very common experience to have and nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Um, So I did end up going into my OB and they did a test and said, yes, your water is um, leaking. Obviously it wasn't a big gush like in the movie. So it was just a slow leak. And at that point, Um, They said, take your time, go to the hospital. And, you know, I had kind of wanted it to like naturally happen. But at that point they were like, well, you know, you can have like, once I got to the hospital, they gave me like an hour or so to try and like walk and make, you know, get some progression in the contractions and things. And nothing was really happening. (laughs) So they ended up putting me on Pitocin. I would say my labor overall, it was pretty uneventful, you know, contractions were increasing in strength and they were getting shorter spaced apart. And then like once I hit transition, I, you know, I had some puking, which was fun. Um, (laughs) um, But after that, they did break my water and it was kind of crazy because the pushing phase of my labor with my first son, I didn't realize how long it was. It was probably like two and a half hours and like for me I the time is just so strange when you're in that birth zone I didn't realize it was taking that long so those are kind of the big highlights so it was an induced um, labor actually I guess I did skip kind of an important part at one point he had some heart Mm d-cells and they were worried about that and kind of a few people came rushing in and they they made me wear an oxygen mask basically for the rest of my labor Mm. but aside from that you know everything ended up working out to plan they did um, insert the um, heart rate monitor they can put on the on the top of the baby's head mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay and so and and so you pretty much stayed in bed the entire time um I would say the initial stages of labor I did a lot of like sitting on the birth ball leaning over the bed things like that In the pushing phase I was basically on my back yeah pushing okay so Ashley two and a half hours of pushing is fairly average With epidurals, we expect it to probably be a little bit longer. The recommendation allows for like up to four hours with an epidural because it can take a little bit longer for the birthing person to like get an understanding of how to push because the way that it works, it it blocks the connection really between the brain and the muscles in that area. So 
a longer pushing with an epidural is expected before without an epidural it still can be a challenge especially that first time because you don't yeah. really know how sure. to do it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and you're not you know the only other time that you really push like that is usually on the toilet and you don't have an audience and you don't have people yeah. cheering you on and yeah. <laughs> it kind of throws you everyone off. <laughs> right exactly exactly um so thank you for sharing that though and 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 you and baby were healthy everything was good yes Okay, excellent. And so let's move on to the real heart of this episode, which is your twin birth. Do twins run in your family or your husband's no. family? No? no. So it was a complete surprise out of the yeah. blue. So our twins are identical. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as science can tell, as of now, there's no like um, genetic correlation for identical twins, only for fraternal twins. So they split and now we have two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so when did you find out that you were carrying twins? At what point? So it's funny. So this pregnancy, I was like, oh, I want to go to a midwife this time. I wanted to go to the ABC unit at um, Providence. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was like, I want to try this route. I did. I went there and they confirmed the pregnancy. Um, and then I did my first ultrasound around like six weeks. It was pretty early, I think. Um, and that was when I found out that there was two. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I, you know, I had looked at the screen and thought to myself, you know, there's two little dots there. But I didn't really know what I was looking at. And the ultrasound tech said, yep, there's yeah. two babies, two heartbeats. So I was like, yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so from that point, they said, you know, the midwives don't, they don't do high risk pregnancies at this office. So I had to transfer care. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so at this point, I went back to um, the OB I had originally seen. And I did one appointment there. <laughs> And it was, I was asking questions about the delivery and, you know, I was like, I don't know anything about twins. Like, can I deliver them vaginally? Mm -hmm. Is it going to have to be a C-section? How does this work? I don't know. And, you know, he kind of told me, it depends who's on staff when you deliver. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't really like that answer. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I hear you on that one. I do. So I actually ended up transferring to a practice that only has one OB and he was comfortable with um, twin pregnancy. He sees a lot of infertility patients, so he sees a lot of twins. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, I was kind of concerned as like, oh, well, what if you're not there? <laughs> right. There's only one of you. Um, but I did end up transferring care. And the other kind of upsetting part about the pandemic was, you know, my husband couldn't go with me. He was kind of like, well, I know the provider's at the other office but mm -hmm. you couldn't meet this one because I could only go in by myself right right so yeah definitely a hurdle of deciding what to do but I think I made um, a good decision in the end yeah yeah it sounds like it so yeah I oh yeah I, anybody who is listening and, and was pregnant during the pandemic can definitely feel you on those appointments and and the partners being restricted from entering and, and being involved and I'm so sorry that that happened because that is that must have just added a whole nother layer of vulnerability to your experience yeah definitely yeah especially with it being a high-risk pregnancy um right it's, it's a lot of information to relay 
Sure, sure. So help me understand, um, because a lot of people, I, I had a, a client earlier in my career, I've had a couple of twin pregnancies um, and births during my career, but my very first one, uh, she had gone into her provider and yeah, it was kind of similar. She had a lot of questions and the provider basically told her, I'm the doctor, you're the patient. If you have this many questions, you can find yourself another doctor. And I had already been involved on her team. She didn't find out until she was five months pregnant at the typical first ultrasound. Why, going back, why did you have such an early ultrasound? Six weeks is unusual. Um, I'm not sure if that was their standard practice. I don't know why, really. Okay. I know sometimes if there's a question about like- Maybe they didn't know how far along I was. Yeah. That might be why. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So for our listeners, it's not common. Don't expect your very first appointment to be an ultrasound when you first find out that you're pregnant because it doesn't typically work that way. But yeah, if they do have a question about that, it, it could yeah. be the case. I think I you know, might have gotten a positive pregnancy test earlier mm -hmm. also because of the HCG levels um, being higher. Okay, twins, okay. Uh, yeah, totally that makes sure. sense. Yeah, so... She called me, my client who went into her regular prenatal appointment, discovered she was pregnant with twins, <laughs> crying because she basically felt like her OB fired her and she had no idea how to navigate looking for a new OB. So tell me that journey. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that yeah. journey for you. Cause that must've been to, to, to have a doctor yeah. kind of like not validate all of the concerns and questions that you had especially having had a baby before you kind of knew the typical way that it goes to know that it was going to change and to, to have these <laughs> questions. What was that like for you then? So I actually got kind of lucky when, when the midwife's office discovered that it was twins, they had called me back and kind of told me like, Hey, you know, we're not, we don't do high-risk pregnancies within our office. And they had actually given me the recommendation of this OB and said, you know, we've sent a lot of our twin patients this way before to him. And they also recommended a book for me. I believe it's Twins, Triplets, and Multiples or something like that. I have to look it up, but it's a really good uh, resource. I can drop the link to it yeah, in our sure. show notes for our listeners. So they gave you, they gave you a recommendation but you went back to your previous OB. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had gone back to my previous OB and then once, you know, I had talked with them and our ideals of what I wanted in a birth, what I had hoped for didn't really align. I, I reached out to the recommended office. Okay. And, okay. And scheduled an appointment with them. That's a key point because you had mentioned the term advocate earlier when you were doing your introduction and it's important for us to be our own advocates, especially in something as life-changing as pregnancy and birth. We have to really kind of dig deep down and find our voice to be able to say, this is the standard of care that I need as an individual. And if you're not meeting that need, you're providing me a service. And if you're not going to meet me where I need you to meet me, then I'll go find another service provider. It's not the easiest thing to do because, again, your level of vulnerability is higher when you're pregnant, especially when you're faced with unexpected events during your pregnancy, um, whether they're happy ones or 
mm-hmm. <laughs> or not so happy. Um, <laughs> it's really challenging to find that voice and to actually be able to say it to a person of, of authority. And especially for you, having already had a previous relationship with this provider where you must have had some foundation of trust in them and for you to actually be able to stand up and say no these are my needs and you clearly can't meet them that I think that that is amazing and I'm really impressed by that yeah it was it was definitely a difficult time trying to decide which way to go so it took time it wasn't just something that happened overnight it took time I think, you know, and like my husband did have some pushback because he, you know, knew the other Mm -hmm. providers and that was a comfort to him. But I think after my initial meeting with the new doctor, I was a lot more confident. So my twins were monochorionic, diamnionic, diamnionic, monodi. So they shared one placenta um, and they each had their own amniotic sex. And like the provider at my old office had said, you know, oh, I've only seen, you know, a handful of these pregnancies. And, you know, that was kind of also kind of a a red flag to me. (laughs) Like, you know, I'd like someone who has more information background experience Mm -hmm. with this. And I felt much more comfortable with with the new. Because the type of twin makes a difference. Mono die or die die. Are there any other types? Um, there's mono mono, but it's really rare. Okay. So what category your twin pregnancy falls into also affects how your prenatal care will be handled because each one has different needs, correct? Right. Yeah. So for our listeners, it's really important that you understand what type of twin pregnancy you're carrying and make sure that like with you, that your provider is has the experience and the knowledge to be able to make adjustments to their protocols to meet those needs so that you and your babies can have the best care possible. So, so you met, met the new provider, love at first sight (laughs) (laughs) or trust at first sight, right? Was it, was it the same facility? Did you have to change facilities? Yes, I had to change. Are you talking about the hospital? Yeah. So initially, let me go back a little bit because um, we didn't address this. You mentioned the ABC for our listeners who are not familiar. That stands for Alternative Birthing Center in um, southeastern Michigan at this one particular hospital. There is a separate wing that is a birthing center wing. And on that wing, they have just a handful of rooms, beautifully decorated, queen size beds, not a stirrup in sight, <laughs> large tubs. Two of them are, are whirlpool tubs for laboring people to use for comfort throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, the care is provided by midwives mm-hmm. typically, although there are some OBs that do some deliveries and births on that unit. But it's the same floor as L&D. So in the event that your care did need to switch even midstream through labor, they could transfer you down the hall into a traditional labor and delivery unit. So when you got risked out of the care from the midwives, and it was only because you were twin pregnancy, there was nothing else in your health Mm -hmm. history that caused concern. When that happened, you saw your, your previous OB was that was his practice also doing births at that hospital, maybe not on that part of the unit, but on the regular side. So my 
My providers for my first pregnancy was through Providence and Novi. Okay. Um, and then through the new OB, it was in Southfield. Okay. So you, you had in the same hospital system, you had your yes. first son and yes. then you were switching to the midwives within that hospital system, but in a different facility. Correct. And then you were willing to go back to the previous facility with your previous OB, but then you switched back to the second facility, but with a different OB. And now your birth was going to happen on that other side of the floor in the traditional L&D. Correct. Okay. Just to make it straight for all of our listeners. (laughs) Southeastern Michigan, we are very blessed with having numerous facilities for people to go to and they are all are different and they all can meet different needs. So for some of our listeners, especially if they live in smaller communities or more rural communities, they might not have the number of choices. And also even within this area with all of the many hospitals that we have, insurance plays a large part in where somebody can go um, to have their baby. So just to kind of paint the picture for everybody. Okay. So you you go and you start your pregnancy off really pretty early on. You you found the provider that was going to carry you through the rest of your journey. So let's let's go there. Walk us through that with the yeah. pandemic. Right, with the <laughs> pandemic. So I started seeing the new provider and with the monodi pregnancy, there was extra precautions. So they wanted me to go see a maternal fetal medicine doctor. And I can't remember how often the scans were, but I was getting scanned at least every two weeks. And these are ultrasound scans is what you're talking about. Ultrasound scans, yes. And so they were looking a lot for twin-to-twin transfusion Mm -hmm. um, syndrome Mm -hmm. to make sure that wasn't happening. So they looked at the blood flow through the cords to make sure both of the twins were getting adequate nutrients and resources from the placenta and they looked at their brains, made sure the blood was flowing properly through there. And then they also looked at the fluid levels a lot, amniotic fluid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the twin to twin transfusion syndrome is a concern when they're sharing a placenta because one twin could end up taking more nutrients away, causing the other twin to become deficient. And then there becomes a growth issue where you can start to see disparities in growth. And and so the frequent scanning it seems warranted in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I mean I was, you know, happy that they were <laughs> were monitoring us closely. Obviously it's a lot of, you know, a lot of time, mm-hmm. a lot of money um going in for those ultrasounds all the time on top of your regular OB appointments. So it was a very appointment heavy pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. And you had a little one you were taking care of and there was a pandemic where you couldn't have anybody come in with you to your appointment. So let's just kind of shoot left for a minute and, and talk about the logistics of all of that. Cause I'm sure that with your first pregnancy, it was a lot easier. You didn't have a little one to worry about childcare. You could go freely, no restrictions, no masks, no anything. So tell us a little bit about navigating the logistics of a twin pregnancy, all of these frequent appointments, being the parent of a small child and not being able to have your partner join you. Yeah, it was a lot. I was also working during that time. I think working remotely was honestly a blessing for me. If I had to commute 
walk into the office every day that just took a giant stressor away was the commute, but it was very isolating. I mean, not many people experience a twin pregnancy, and then to go through it during the pandemic, you know, at that point, I actually personally had a couple close friends that had moved away, you know, I felt very alone in it, and so that was, it was very difficult. And then, like you said, having a toddler, um, trying to chase him around with this big old belly <laughs> was definitely a task. Yeah, yeah. So, golly, I, it just breaks my heart every time I hear somebody who has those additional cha- experience, those additional challenges during their pregnancy. So, let everything went well. All of your prenatal appointments, you had no concerns throughout your pregnancy. Everything progressed. Yeah, we were very lucky. Yeah, you know. I don't remember what the the percentage that can have trouble with monodiet pregnancy, but like there's a lot more complications that can come with that than a, a typical pregnancy. And so, you know, every appointment that was positive and the babies are growing, they're growing well, was like a relief every time. <laughs> yeah. Now, how did your daily life change in comparison to your previous pregnancy? In other words, did you have to make specific nutritional or dietary changes to accommodate growing two babies at once? Did you, were you ever put on bed rest? Were there any concerns or alterations to your daily life in those aspects? Nutritionally, I don't think I really changed much. There was, in that book I was referring to, they kind of discussed diet and like how many calories you should be eating per day. So I did look at that a little bit just to make sure I was eating enough, you know, to sustain um, so much growth happening. And then they also suggested taking, I think it was calcium, magnesium, and zinc. And then my provider also had me take like a a baby aspirin also. So I was taking those to help make sure the pregnancy was going well. And then I think the baby aspirin, there's actually a study about preeclampsia. And that was the justification for taking that. But aside from that, I mean, I definitely was not doing as much exercising or movement. I did do some prenatal yoga. So that was that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really enjoyed doing that. My first pregnancy, I think it helped me connect a lot with my body and, and my baby and everything that was changing. Yeah. So with the pandemic, was that something that you also did remotely or at home? Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, the pandemic just really... <laughs> It impacted so many aspects of our lives and it it just, it, looking back at it, can you, it seems a little bit surreal. It does. I was like, I had taken some notes and I was like reviewing them and I was like, wow, like, you know, I can't believe all these things happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And like reading like, oh, you know, the state is shutting everything down again. Like these are the rules now. (laughs) It was like so much was changing and trying to figure out. And then like I had notes like, oh, they're, you know, they're starting to do research on vaccines and all those things. So mm-hmm. it's, it was definitely a crazy time. Yeah, so much. So you're, you're, so just so I'm clear on the timing, because pandemic timing too. Oof. Yeah. So your babies are a year and a half old. So they were born in 2020. They were born in March of 2021. Oh, March of 2021. Okay. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah, got, that would be a year out, and a half. See, my my timing and my out, is terrible. I was pregnant in August of 2020. Okay, yeah. okay. So like five months after the pandemic had really started, I guess. Okay, yeah. Whoa, 
that must have been <laughs> something that kind of threw you for a loop. Were you planning yes. on pregnancy or was it a surprise? Um, it was kind of a surprise. Okay. My husband and I had started talking about it and I was like, no, let's wait. Mm -hmm. um, and then, oh, I'm yeah. pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> the world went crazy. Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. So your pregnancy went fine. You were 38 and five with your first when you went spontaneously into labor. How did this one go? Because when people hear twins, they typically hear, I mean, we, 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 we are looking at a great pregnancy. If it goes past 34 weeks, we don't expect it to extend past 36, although it certainly can. How, how was that for you? What were, what were your thoughts or your provider's thoughts on how that was going to happen? Yeah. So like you said, a lot of twins are born early, you know, a lot of time you go into pregnancy spontaneous or into labor spontaneously with twins early. And, you know, kind of like I was saying, every week was a milestone, like, oh, we made it another week, you know, like, it was at first, it was like, let's focus on making it to 28 weeks, let's focus on making it to 32 weeks. And I actually made it to 37 weeks. And my provider had said, you know, there's some risk of stillbirth or degradation of the placenta past that point. So I was induced at 37 weeks. Okay. And was that, and what was the fact that they shared a placenta more of a concern for the degradation of it, just to clarify for our listeners? Yes. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So if they had had their own placentas, there wouldn't have been as much Yes. of a concern in that way. Okay. Now, again, another reason why it's really imperative to understand what type of twin pregnancy you have so that you can really reasonably and informatively look at all of your options and mm -hmm. understand how those options may or may not be available to you based on the type of pregnancy that you're having. So they encouraged you to, to have an induction at 37 weeks. You did not have a doula. No. So how did you navigate that? In, in previous episodes, we talked about induction. We talked about the different types of induction that you can have, the different forms that you can have, the impact that each form might have on the trajectory of your labor. So tell me how that conversation went with your provider. I had asked him, you know, like, what were the risks and the benefits and tried to do some research on my own. I don't think there's like a lot of research on it from what I saw. But, you know, just hearing my provider's concerns and his experience made me feel like being induced was the best decision just to make sure the babies were still healthy and I didn't want to, you know, force to extend it if um, it was going to put them at risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this brings up a really interesting point, Ashley, and that is that twin births can be vaginal. Twin pregnancy does not equal an automatic cesarean. Yeah. Can you help our listeners understand why that is and, and what factors play into the mode of birth as you're getting closer to that happening? Yeah. So there are a lot of factors, you know, whether you, what kind of twin pregnancy you have plays a factor and then what positions the babies are in plays a major role. I think another thing my provider mentioned was that since I had another, a previous vaginal birth, that it could help with, you know, my body's already been through this once. There's a higher likelihood of being able to have a vaginal birth, but some providers want both of your babies to be head down in the cephalic position. Some will do it with one head down and one breech. And my 
<laughs> original OB that I went to said, you know, we, we will only deliver if they're both head down, which I think there's like a 40% chance of that happening. So I was like, well, that doesn't sound very promising, <laughs> which was a big part of the reason why I decided to switch providers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was kind of a blanket rule, not individualizing care for each pregnant person. Right. So when you hear certain statements, it can give you a clue as to where your provider stands on any given topic or issue, not just if you're facing a twin or a multiples pregnancy, but this could be anything from a 41-week automatic induction to how they handle certain medications or conditions. And, And so you, you know, even not having gone through your doula training yet, it sounds like you intuitively understood how to kind of listen for those I'm not going to call them red flags yellow flags yeah I think like listening to other twin birth stories and realizing like what was possible um, really helped a lot I listen to the the birthful podcast a lot Mm -hmm. Um, yeah there's a there are a lot of great podcast episodes out there that can help people um, to navigate or at least get a foundation of knowledge. You don't have to be a birth professional to advocate for yourself. And in fact, as birth professionals, we really want to teach our clients how to advocate for themselves because they're the ones who are going to be continuing their parenting journey long after we're out of the picture. So by teaching our clients the skills to advocate for themselves and then supporting them in that in that venture, they can do that in any atmosphere, whether it's medical for themselves, medical for their child, school. As parents, we have to advocate for our children. And the skills that you learn during pregnancy can help carry you through your entire parenting journey. So that's really exciting that you had a provider who said, you have everything going in your favor to have a vaginal twin birth. And I'm assuming that your provider was okay if you had said if if one baby was head up and one baby was head down, did it matter which one came first? Yeah, that's a good point. So it actually did matter. Um, the twin A, who's closer to the cervix, um, had to be head down, the first one to come out. Yes. So my my twins, they flipped a lot. <laughs> they liked to give me some heartburn. So like every ultrasound I went Aww. in, I swear they were in a different position. So that was that was kind of wild, just waiting to see like, okay, what position are you going to be in when we actually give birth mm-hmm. here? And so do you remember at what point it seemed like they were in the position that they were going to remain in? So twin A, I think, finally went head down and stayed head down around like 31 weeks twin b he like i think he flipped around till the end (laughs) he was he was like defended on the day where he was is his personality like that now yeah (laughs) that's what i always say how they are inside you can see how they're going to be on the outside (laughs) when you had your first son i'm assuming once you knew he was head down vaginal birth was your was your your goal there were no signs pointing in any direction that it was going to change did you have your like a birth plan or birth preferences or anything set up for him how did that change as far as planning and preparing for the twins 
Yeah, so I actually did make like a birth preferences sheet. I had like some little images on there of everything I wanted. You know, I was trying to go unmedicated and it was fairly straightforward, it sounds. Yes, it was fairly straightforward. And I actually had the support of my mom and my sister as well as my husband during that labor. So that was nice. You know, they were there to to give me some shoulder massages and wave a fan in my face and put a cool rag on me. So they were, and you know, my husband had the freedom to leave the Mm -hmm. room if he needed to. So that was nice. Obviously that wasn't an option with this twin birth because I was only allowed one uh, support person in with me. I think they would have made the exception if there was a doula. Right. But I'm not totally sure. And that was a pandemic restriction, not a twin restriction. Okay. Yes. Yes. Pandemic. Right. Yes. Because many of our hospitals in the very beginning, even we were excluded. We did a lot of, you know, purely virtual births. And then as, as time has gone on, things have gotten a little bit better. I just heard just this morning that the Beaumont system, which is one of the largest hospital systems in Southeastern Michigan, has now further loosened their restrictions. They will allow a birth partner, a doula, and an additional support person, which is really, really nice for a lot of people. So, But just to clarify, that was a pandemic restriction. It had nothing to do with the fact that you had twins. Now that kind of draws me into a question because for my very first twin birth, they gave them the room to labor in a regular L&D room. And then as labor progressed, when it became obvious that, because they were also shooting for vaginal birth, they had the same situation as long as the first twin was head down. It didn't matter if the second one was head down or or butt down. If the baby was flipped sideways, that'd be a whole, you know, sometimes the second twin will do that. Once the first twin leaves the uterus, then sometimes the second twin will flip sideways, which then becomes another issue. But the plan was as long as that other baby stayed in a straight position, whether it was head up or not, it could come out vaginally. But they did move us to the OR because of that possibility, right? With the second twin. Was that similar in your situation? So I like pretty much every twin birth story I've heard, that is the case. Like they Mm -hmm. want to move you to the OR once, once you get to the pushing phase just in case anything happens but this provider actually let me stay in the regular labor and delivery room so that was pretty nice now that's fantastic now was that because we did see a change in it was a it was a good change in some of the protocols in facilities in the area because of staffing issues oh. it takes more staff to be present in an OR yeah. Than in a traditional labor and delivery room, you were given the impression that this was just this provider's philosophy and how they handle it. It, it yeah. didn't really have to he, do with that. He, he kind of said, you know, it depends on the circumstances, but as long as, you know, everything's going well, then we should be able to stay in, in the labor and delivery room. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. So did you notice, was there additional staff brought in? Uh, were there more people in your room this um, the second time you gave birth than as opposed to the first yes, time? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you talk about that? Do you know who everyone was? How did that work? Did, were there any explanations given to you in that vein? No, I don't think so. Um, I know, you know, there was a resident, there was my doctor, there was a nurse. I think they had some nurses from like the NICU staff in just in case but yeah 
I don't I don't know who everyone was. <laughs> there was a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> yeah. And I think they were excited to see a twin birth too. Was part of the reason why there were so many people. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I mean, I do feel like it's special. Twins in general, I feel like are very special. So I think it's cool, you know, to be able to share and have that teaching moment with some of the medical staff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's that that is very generous of, of you and gracious of you because not everybody feels that way. And if they don't prepare you and explain to you, you know, okay, so not only am I going to be in the room, but there's also going to be these other people in the periphery. They may not touch you. They may not talk to you. They may not interact with you, but they're going to be there just so you are aware that there's going to be a lot of humans in this room. If you're not aware of that, for some people, it can be incredibly disconcerting. Yeah, I think they did prepare us somewhat that there was going to be more people because I do remember my husband like saying, oh, I'm going to clean up the room. Oh, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> How sweet of him. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. <laughs> so we went in at uh, night, on, I think it was a Monday, for the induction. And my first son's birth from when they started the Pitocin to when he was born was like 10 hours. So I kind of expected like by morning we will have babies. Mm. But the Pitocin wasn't really working. So my contractions were not very strong. They were kind of intermittent. And so that was that was kind of disappointing. I think we stayed up till like probably like 4 a.m. or so. And then we were like, well, let's just try and get some sleep, I guess, since it doesn't seem like anything's happening. Mm-hmm. And in the morning, you know, my, my doctor had come in and, and been like, yeah, you know, I think I had come in around like two or three centimeters, um, 80% of face. So, okay. So you had a fairly ripe cervix and you didn't yeah. really need a ripener, right. which is how some inductions start. Yes. Okay. So they just jumped right to Pitocin because you had a favorable cervix. Correct. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we had expected that things would go progress more quickly than they had, just based on my first birth. And so the next morning after my doctor had come in, I had wanted him to check me again, just to see if we had made any more progress. (laughs) Because I was like, we spent all night on Pitocin and nothing has really happened. And I was, my cervix pretty much had not changed. And so we were like, you know, I'm kind of wondering, I thought it was really interesting um, when Chana was talking about in one of the episodes, how she went home after an induction, because like at this point in my induction, I was like, nothing's happening. Um, Yeah, she, she was really bold that way. (laughs) Yes. I was like, wow. Okay. I didn't know that was an option. (laughs) If it, if it, if you knew, would you have done that at this point? No, because I feel like at this point I was so done being pregnant mm. and like <laughs> you know I was like I want to meet these babies and like have this moment we're already here <laughs> right right <laughs> they ended up deciding you know if we want to get this moving let's let's try and break your water and see if it progresses which with my first son after my water broke everything went pretty quickly and the same thing happened this time but I, my baby B was feet down Oh, feet down. In delivery, yeah. Okay, both feet. um, I'm not sure exactly like what breach position he was in, but he was not head down. Okay. Um, Oh, okay, okay. Because a footling breach can cause their own issues. I don't think they specified like exactly what breach position he was, Mm -hmm. um, but 
he was definitely a breach at the at the time of okay. delivery. Okay, so, but a safe breach to to do vaginally. Yeah, so you know, I had for some reason in my head, I feel like I had just pictured him coming out breach, um, mm-hmm. and I had asked the, my provider like, okay, so if twin B is breech like what are we doing right <laughs> um and he had said you know he's comfortable with breech births and he's done them before um which isn't very common and but that his plan would be to do an internal version mm-hmm. and I was like oh, that sounds pretty uncomfortable yeah yeah <laughs> so, explain that explain that to our <laughs> listeners what does that mean so that means that after the first baby was born they would reach up and put one hand up through the vaginal canal, um, the other hand on the outside and try and flip the baby around so that they were head down. And why would he do that if he was comfortable with breech birth? That was what I did not understand. Like I had asked him like pretty much every appointment was like, I don't know. He said like he's had success doing it. And, you know, there's less like, I guess the risk of breech birth, they're worried about head entrapment. And so, you know, that was, that was what he wanted to do and I was like kind of like I don't know mm-hmm. how I feel about this he was like you know if baby B is breech at the time of delivery we would suggest you get an epidural because doing that internal version is obviously going to be pretty painful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so do you feel like that was yellow flag yes I do but I, at that point in my pregnancy I was like you know I, I didn't really want to look elsewhere Mm -hmm. um for a provider and I was kind of putting my my trust in him at that point yeah yeah you felt committed it sounds like yeah and and all of the other boxes of your needs were were checked with this provider yeah did you feel like you had room since he had said he was comfortable doing breech births did you feel like you had room to negotiate that with him? That you would have the ability to remove consent yeah, for no, that procedure? I feel like I tried like multiple times to ask him, like, why do you want to do the internal version? And like I think it was just because he had previous success with it and that he said it was less risky than delivering breach. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I definitely didn't feel like I had the pull there to say, no, you know, I want, if he's breached, I want him to be delivered breach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a point of contention there. Yeah. And and therein lies the crux of informed consent, because you would actually be consenting to multiple procedures, it sounds like. You would be consenting to an epidural, mm-hmm. which involves not just the epidural itself. And then there's, there's the concern of timing, because an epidural... Even if the anesthesiologist is right there in the room, the epidural still takes time to administer. You would have to move into another position Mm -hmm. for the anesthesiologist to be able to do it. So it it just encompasses a lot of other things. And so, you know, kind of my soapbox and and where I plant my flag is you cannot give informed consent if you do not first have informed choice. Consent should never be something that you are coerced into or that you cannot give freely. And it's a fundamental human right. You should be able to withdraw your consent at any time, understanding that you are taking responsibility for any risks or consequences that might come from that, but it's still your right to do so. And the fact that you felt like you didn't have that right is, it hurts my heart. Yeah, it was definitely hard. And like, 
I remember having conversations with my husband and being like, I just, you know, I don't understand why this is the path that he wants to take. But yeah, I, I felt like by myself, I didn't have enough to to really, you know, say say no to him and 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 change the the path. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am very sorry that that you had that experience um, because it's not how it should be. And that just goes to show even the best providers who who check all the boxes, they can still have these sticky points where they have a certain way of practicing and that's just what they're comfortable with. And even though it's your body and your experience and your baby, they're still going to do what they feel most comfortable with. Yeah. And we really need to keep pushing to change that. We really do because we are the ones with the lived experiences Mm -hmm. and who carry these experiences down the way. So, okay. We kind of went off a little bit. So you, you, you got baby a head down, pushed him out. Yep. Yeah. So baby a, I think it was only like 30 minutes of pushing and baby a came out and they put him on my chest. He had like a really short cord. (laughs) Mm. which was interesting so they ended up having to like cut it so that he could actually come up on me <laughs> right because otherwise he would have been down on your belly right, yeah yeah <laughs> um so then after that the plan was to flip baby b because he was breech at that point and the doctor actually had a resident doing the procedure which i also didn't expect which was a nice mm. surprise because I was mm. like, kind of like, you know, I, I hired you because you had the expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, so baby A is on my chest. I'm kind of distracted by that. And they're trying to turn baby B. And I heard his water break and I felt it. And mm. I knew that wasn't supposed to happen until they had flipped him and his head was on my cervix. Okay. So I'm just trying, I'm a, my thinking pictures. <laughs> yep. So you got you have the epidural, I'm assuming. Yes, then. I did get the epidural. You got it before you pushed out baby A. Yes. Okay. Because your doctor said, the plan is I'm gonna do this, even though you're not comfortable with yeah. it. I'm still gonna do it. So let's just get the epidural beforehand so we can we can check that and get that out of the way. Okay. How far into your labor did you get the epidural, by the way? It was after my water broke. I think I was about five or six centimeters. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, the residents. We love the fact that we have institutions where doctors are learning in real life situations. We don't love the fact that we are not always told that they're learning on us. And that is a real predicament of the healthcare system. There's a wonderful author. His name is, I I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but um, it's Atul Gawande. And one of his books, I've read, I've read a couple of his books, and one of them, he addresses that actual fact of how do you train doctors to work on people without putting the people at risk? Right. And I've had clients who, you know, they've had a history of medical trauma and did not want residents on their cases, did not want students on their cases, and were told by their provider in a prenatal appointment, this is a teaching hospital, you don't get a choice. And that, again, is something that people need to understand and factor into their decision about who they're choosing and where they're choosing to have their babies. And again, we don't always get a choice. Some, there are numerous reasons why we you know, we have to go to a certain facility, insurance purposes, right. health purposes, whatever the case might be. But darn it, we have a right to say who gets to put their fingers or hands inside of yeah. us. 
Yeah. And like, so again, I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is strange. Like you're having someone there at this important point in your, in your life. And like, you might not really know them that well. <laughs> yeah. Like with my first pregnancy, it was a practice that had seven or eight OBs. And so, you know, it was kind of roll of the dice. Who was there the day of your delivery? And before this resident put their hands inside of you, did you have any conversation with this person? Did you get to like, like where in their training yes, they are? Um, she did. She did introduce herself. I guess I just wasn't aware that she was going to be the one putting her hand inside me. So at what point did you come to that realization? Like when it was happening? Yeah. Oh my word. And I think, I mean, like I had the other baby on my chest, obviously there was a lot going on in that moment. So I was like, you know, not that concerned about it until I heard baby B's water break. And then mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this isn't how this is supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to tell if that was a result of her manipulation with inside of you or if right. his water would have broken at that point anyway. And that's the other thing is when you're dealing with labor and, and pregnancy and, and birth, there are so many things that you can't put your finger on. Yeah. This is this this was the cause. So how did that change things? So I think like one of my worst fears uh, having a twin birth was to have like what they call the double whammy, which is to have the first one vaginally and then have to have a C-section for the second one. Because then, you know, you're just recovering from two procedures and it's it just sounded like that would be a lot for your body to go through. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, you know, I was like, I don't know what's happening anymore. I feel completely out of control of the situation. And, you know, it was actually only two minutes between when my first son was born and the second one was born. But it felt like the longest two minutes of my life. Um, That's a lot to pack into two minutes. Yeah. So once his baby bee's water broke, his feet actually pretty much just shot out, according to what my husband saw. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> and so they ended up, you know, having to kind of assist pulling him out. They kind of like tucked his chin so that his head wouldn't get stuck on the way out. So it was a very fast delivery. He pretty much was just, you know, obviously things were opened up from the first baby coming out. So it was easier for him to come out, um, luckily. Yeah, wow. And so who actually did that part of it? Once this happened, did the attending your actual OB take over or did the resident finish the job? The resident finished the job, yeah. Which was part of I was very freaked out in that moment. Um once once the water broke and I I knew he wasn't in head down position. I just remember my husband saying, "You know, like don't squeeze the baby too hard cuz I had <laughs> the first baby on my chest and I was like oh. gripping to like because I was like so like worked up as like okay what's gonna happen now I don't know what's going on I'm not in control and he's like okay <laughs> don't squeeze the baby <laughs> I was like oh yeah right right because and that and that's something when I'm teaching childbirth classes that's something that I go over is the fear pain tension cycle yes yeah when, as soon as that fear kicks in yeah your muscles tighten up and and you're in kind of you you automatically in a millisecond go into self-preservation mode yeah and yeah you forgot you were holding your baby oh yeah. my goodness <laughs> yeah so that was a big moment of fear pretty much like after baby B came out they they like whisked him away to the warmer and make sure everything was okay and luckily he was you know perfectly fine but mm -hmm. um definitely um a different delivery than expected yeah yeah wow 
And so you have one baby in your arms, second baby is in the warmer. When did you get to meet that baby? Um, so they, you know, I think they pretty much just checked him out, did a little suction because he, you know, he wasn't able to really clear uh, the fluid out from being born head down. So he was kind of congested and everything. And it, it really wasn't, it was probably a few minutes and my husband had him next to me. So yeah. that's, well, it, that is the best outcome, obviously. <laughs> so you had a successful vaginal twin birth, a few bumps along the way. Yep. Anything in the immediate postpartum that stood out to you differently than the first one? The singleton versus the twins as far as what happened with placental delivery and, you know, your repair, anything like that? Yeah, um... I think I had a, about a second degree tear from both deliveries. I think because I, I pushed much longer the first time, you know, everything was kind of tensed up. My pelvic floor was very, very tight after I ended up going to pelvic floor PT to get help with that because, you know, I couldn't have sex after having my first baby. You know, it was painful down there and everything was tight. So that was really helpful. You know, I didn't know that that was a resource until I started looking into it. But that's definitely something people should look into if they have issues with their pelvic floor after. Yeah, absolutely. We love pelvic floor therapists. And let me tell you, what doesn't show up immediately postpartum starts showing up a couple decades later. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have as much pain with my pelvic floor after the twins delivery. I think my delivery after the twins actually went or, sorry, my recovery actually went better because I took things a lot slower, I think, than the first time. Did the pandemic help you slow things down? Yeah, definitely. There, there, there were not people like coming to my door saying, I want to see the baby and all that. You know, it was pretty much only like my parents, my husband's parents that were coming around. So it definitely helped not not having to uh, entertain other people or go out and see people. <laughs> Yeah. Now I know that they were speeding up discharges a little bit with the pandemic. Um, what was your discharge? Were any differences between your discharge with this, your first pregnancy and then with the twin pregnancy? And how much of that do you think was pandemic related or not at all? Yeah, that's really interesting because so my first son, I delivered at like almost midnight. So they have like some rule about like how long you're there based on the the day or something so we ended up staying two days with him just because of the time that we delivered and with the twins we were only there for like I think 24 hours after I delivered them which seemed very fast they actually like it seemed I don't know if it was because I was a second time mom but it seemed like there was less support after their birth like no one was coming in and telling me like this is how often you should be feeding your baby and things like that like it seemed like maybe it was a low staff problem too but it didn't seem like there was as much support of like okay this is what you need to do this is what you should expect when you come home or anything like that mm. so 24 hours and you were home with a toddler and two newborns yep <laughs> what was that like <laughs> it was wild <laughs> You know, we're lucky to have family in the area and um, grandma had had my toddler at the time. And it was it was definitely a big adjustment for him because he was used to being the only one. And, you know, 
these these two small wormy humans were entering his picture so that was a big adjustment yeah yeah and feeding how did the feeding go of your of your twins um it went pretty well i had breastfed my son for like 12 months my first son and with the twins we did end up doing a little bit of formula supplementation at the beginning just because their weights were pretty low they were like five pounds 14 ounces and five fifteen or something like that when they were born so decent size for twins but still on the smaller size for a, a singleton baby right right yeah that would be a concern if it was a singleton baby to right. be that that little yes. but yeah that's a great those are great entry the world weights for twins yeah yeah so we were definitely blessed with smooth pregnancy and nice healthy babies mm-hmm so you only you said you you supplemented with formula in the beginning for how long yeah I don't it's kind of a blur I think it was only a few weeks that we did the supplementing and honestly it was such a pain and you know I've I've always heard you know like it's supply and demand it's supply and demand so I'm like to me like giving them formula on top of it I was like why like shouldn't we be telling my body sending those signals that you know we need more demand like why are we you know, giving them formula on top of it. So I think we actually, you know, kind of stopped supplementing earlier than our our provider had told us, um, mm-hmm. the pediatrician, because I was kind of like, I want the, <laughs> I want this breastfeeding journey to work, and it was just a lot of work to do the the double feedings. Mm-hmm. It was so much more work. When you say supplement, were you like in the same feeding session, doing both formula and yeah. at, at the breast? Yeah, so I would nurse them first, and then we would kind of like top them off, if you will, with with formula. And that came on the recommendation of your pediatrician, who I'm assuming you had already established a relationship with because yes. of your, your older child. Yes. So throughout your pregnancy, you were probably in contact with this pediatrician who was giving you recommendations. Yes. Not something that a lot of people would have. Right. A lot of people, if they don't already have a pediatrician, they they wouldn't be getting those recommendations until after the twins were, mm-hmm. would have been born. Yeah. So you kind of had an idea that... Um, It was actually because they had, I can't remember what the percentage is, they had dipped like 10% below their birth weight or I can't remember what the numbers they usually look for. So this recommendation came after. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you did that, you you decided to switch to full breastfeeding and all was well? All was well. I I nursed them until they were about 15 months. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild. I mean, like when I was pr- first pregnant and I found out that it was twins, you know, automatically I was like, do I have to have a C-section? Mm-hmm. No, okay, I don't. Can I nurse two babies at once? Like, how does this work? <laughs> and the early days, you know, I would nurse them one at a time because I was trying to figure out each of their latches and like we're both learning together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and once their latches were a little bit more established, being able to feed them both at the same time was so much more efficient. <laughs> I was like, all right, you know, I have two boobs, I have two babies, we can do this. <laughs> Excellent. Definitely not as easy, like, if you were to go out in public with one baby, you could, you know, 
hide it a little or you know not be out in the open if you felt self-conscious feeding your baby but with two it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> that logistics was was a lot to figure out if we if we wanted to go anywhere yeah yeah so the pandemic probably helped you in that as well yeah yeah there's sometimes some debate about feeding on a schedule and feeding on demand mm-hmm. On demand is obviously easier when you are only dealing with one baby's demands what what was your pattern that way we were pretty much feeding on demand. You know, at the beginning, I'd say they were eating probably every two hours. And we pretty much treated them like they were a package deal. So if one baby was hungry, I would try and feed both babies. Mm-hmm. You know, like at night, if one of them woke up, we'd wake the other one up and feed them and change their diaper and put them back to sleep. And, you know, I think that was the only way to survive, really, <laughs> because... If they were waking up on different schedules and it was like we were up every hour of the night and that's just not sustainable. Yeah, yeah, I can. Well, I can imagine because my second son and he was a single baby, he did nurse every hour around the clock for the first nine months of his life. So I can attest to how mentally and physically draining it is to have hourly feedings for sure. So I'm so glad to hear that your feeding journey of twins went so well and so long and and those are some great tips that you shared because I think you're right I think a lot of people have preset assumptions about twin pregnancies and twin births and twin feedings so throughout this birth story which really is amazing and I'm so grateful that you have generously shared all of this with with me and with our listeners Can you pare everything down into some tips or maybe even some specific questions that you found really valuable that you asked? Or maybe you might have some questions that you wish you had asked that might have had an impact on your experience. Yeah, I think understanding the anatomy of, you know, everything that's going on in your body for the specific twin pregnancy is is very important. and understanding like why they're they're monitoring the babies and and what kind of risks there are. I think one of the important questions I was asking along the way is like, okay, you know, at this point in pregnancy, like what are the chances like what is what is the chances of like any of like twin to twin transfusion syndrome or any of these other things possibly happening? Because that was, you know, very nerve wracking to have this high risk pregnancy and and wondering like what could go wrong, which like I was very lucky and nothing really went wrong, but at least going to maternal fetal medicine, they kind of like laid out all the possibilities in front of me. And that can be very overwhelming. So I think understanding like where you are in your pregnancy and and how things are going um, with your babies. And then also, I think one thing that I, I didn't do as well, like when my provider suggested um, different procedures or things that might happen in relating to the delivery, really asking, like, is there research you can point me to that backs this up? I think I would have felt better in my decisions if I, I had more real real hard facts, <laughs> if available, on like why decisions are being made. Because the those decisions are very hard to make and you know it's hard to tell when it's you know the provider's opinion 
or if it's coming from research or if it's just kind of what they've always done. Yeah, that that's an excellent point. Again, it goes back to informed choice. You can't make an informed choice if you don't have all of the information. And sometimes providers, I think that they they really do have the best of intentions for the most part. I, there's very few providers out there, I think, that that are consciously practicing with selfish motives right? Yeah. <laughs> or with complete disregard for their patient's feelings. But I think that they do kind of get into a track of this is what I've been taught or this is what I've seen or this is what I know mm-hmm. and therefore this is what I do. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, I think that's a very honest reflection for you to share. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else? I just say good luck to anyone who's expecting twins and <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that is a really, a really good thing to keep in mind is that it's doable. Like your, your journey may take some twists and turns that you don't expect. And that can happen with a singleton pregnancy as well. Mm-hmm. But particularly when you're facing a twin or multiples pregnancy, definitely your journey veers off a little bit differently, but it's doable. It's absolutely doable. So thank you, Ashley, for sharing your experience with, with us. This has been remarkable. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Exie. If listeners wanted to get in touch with you individually, let's say that we are personally, let's say we have some expectant twin parents out there and they want a, a one-on-one. Is there is that something that you offer now as a doula? Um, I don't really have my services available yet since I'm still in training, but mm-hmm. I would definitely be willing to talk to any expectant twin parents out there. And what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? You can get in touch with me via Instagram. It's going to be running on endorphins. So the word running on and then endorphins. Okay, fantastic. And I will I will put that in our show notes as well so that um, our listeners can just click on the link sure. uh, to get in touch with you and then um, probably private message you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, congratulations a year and a half later on the birth of your twins. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It has been lovely to talk with you. And I will make sure that all of your information, you'll get that book title to me, will be in the show notes for our listeners. And congratulations to anyone out there who is expecting a baby, two babies, or more. If you would like to have your birth story featured on Doula to Doula, please contact me, Exie Bueller, in the email listed in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Doula to Doula. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app. For more information about how you can get support from Tranquil Touch Birth and Women's Wellness, please visit TranquilTouchForWomen.com. That's TranquilTouchForWomen.com. We'll see you again soon.